Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast for the foreign policy and global development communities and anyone who wants a deeper understanding of what is driving events in the world today. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. Enjoy the show. Brittany Griner is an American basketball superstar. She's been a gold medalist for Team USA and a seven-time All-Star in the WNBA. On February 17th, she was arrested in an airport outside of Moscow, allegedly for possession of cannabis oil. She's been held in a Russian jail ever since, and her trial is scheduled to begin on July 1st. The Brittany Griner case is a textbook example of what my guest today calls hostage diplomacy. Danny Gilbert is an assistant professor of military and strategic affairs at the U.S. Air Force Academy. She is a leading researcher and expert on the causes and consequences of hostage-taking in international security. We kick off discussing the circumstances of Brittany Griner's arrest and detention in Russia, and then have a conversation about how the U.S. government approaches situations in which an American abroad is wrongfully detained. This leads us to a broader discussion about trends in hostage diplomacy around the world. This is a very helpful conversation with a leading expert on the subject of hostage diplomacy and will give you the background you need to understand the Brittany Griner case as it evolves. And before we start, if you are a regular listener to the show, please take a moment to review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to it, and even better, Share the show with your friends or colleagues who you think might benefit from the kind of interviews that I conduct. All right, now here is my conversation with Danny Gilbert of the U.S. Air Force Academy. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. I know that you have a disclaimer you must make. Thanks so much, Mark. So while I am employed by the U.S. Air Force Academy, I'm speaking today in my personal capacity. My views do not represent the U.S. Air Force Academy, the Department of the Air Force, or the Department of Defense. Uh, good. Okay. So with that, uh, I want to kick off by having you explain what we know so far about the circumstances of Brittany Griner's arrest and detention. Brittany Griner was arrested on February 17th in an airport outside of Moscow. She was traveling because in the off season, she, like many other WNBA players, play for the European League, where they actually make much more money than they do playing for the WNBA at home. 
She was arrested going through airport security and alleged uh, they found allegedly a trace of hash oil in her luggage, which can be conveyed by the Russian government as drug trafficking with a possible charge, a possible sentence of up to 10 years. Um, So if you're paying attention to the calendar, you might know that February 17th was just one week before Russia invaded Ukraine at the start of the war. So we didn't hear anything about her arrest or about her detention for uh, several weeks after she was arrested. So the news finally broke on March 5th that she had been arrested several weeks prior. And since that time, she has been in prison in Russia. She's had multiple hearings that have been uh, postponed and delayed. And she will finally face trial on Friday, July 1st. What do we know about the circumstances of her detention? I mean, she is arguably like the highest profile American being held abroad in a situation like this, a gold medalist, a basketball superstar, Mm -hmm. uh, also being held in a country hostile uh, to LGBTQ people, of which she is. What do we know about her, her detention? All reports indicate that she is doing as well as she could under these really just devastating circumstances. She is not being given any special treatment. She's being held in prison, not under house arrest or anything like that. Um, She has had several consular visits, though at times those have been denied. And she has a team of two Russian lawyers. Now note, those are not court-appointed lawyers. Those are lawyers who were selected and and vetted by her representation in the United States. And so they are working on her case. Um, But it's, it's a horrible circumstance, Mark. I mean, she, as you mentioned, is not only an American detained in a country that is arguably hostile to Americans, but certainly a country that is going to be hostile to a Black LGBTQ American. And so um, it's just a really horrible circumstance. What has been the American response thus far since uh, February 17th, her arrest and the subsequent publicity around her arrest, which started on March 5th? Sure. So at first, the circumstances around her arrest were silent, completely quiet. And part of that is a possible logic that by talking about her case, by publicizing her case, that it might have raised the stakes in her trial. The ideal scenario, once she had gone through this horrible arrest, would be that the Russian government admits that the whole thing had been a mistake and had been a misunderstanding and lets her go and she would come home you know, in health and in safety. But that didn't happen. And between March 5th, when we first learned about her arrest, and several months later in May, the U.S. government really changed how it was talking about and classifying her case. So in May, the U.S. government classified her arrest as a wrongful detention. So what that means, Americans are are arrested abroad very frequently when they break the law in foreign countries. And the U.S. government often doesn't do anything to intervene in those cases. The American would receive visits from consular affairs, but we allow those 
cases to play out through other countries' criminal justice systems. When the State Department classifies an American as wrongfully or unlawfully detained, it signifies that the U.S. government thinks that there is something wrong in the case, that we don't trust that the criminal justice system will treat that American fairly. There's a whole list of criteria by which the State Department makes that designation, and it really runs the gamut. So the State Department might designate an arrest as a wrongful detention if they think that the American is not receiving a fair trial, or if there's credible evidence that the American is actually innocent of the crimes that that they've been accused of committing. That designation might also come if the U.S. government thinks that the American is being held as a hostage, that they're being held for leverage, or if the State Department's own human rights reports indicate that we don't expect that the American would get fair treatment in prison. So for any of those reasons, and we don't know which one necessarily was the relevant one in Brittany Griner's case, for any of those reasons, the United States might redesignate the case as a wrongful or unlawful detention. And as a consequence of redesignating the case, my understanding is that it moves from the State Department to a special office in the White House. Is that correct? Very close. So it actually moves from one office in the State Department to another office in the State Department. So from when a, consular affairs to something special. Exactly. It moves from consular affairs, whose job is simply to pay attention to the welfare of Americans abroad, to the special presidential envoy for hostage affairs, uh, otherwise known by the acronym SPIHA. And the SPIHA is an office in the State Department. The the presidential envoy is the chief U.S. diplomat who is responsible for diplomatic negotiations and conversations about Americans who are wrongfully detained or taken hostage abroad. And this is all articulated in a law that I knew you had a hand in helping to craft, the Robert Levinson uh, Accountability Act. Can you just describe who is Robert Levinson or who was Robert Levinson and what does this act say and why was it created? Sure. So Robert Levinson was an American who went missing, taken captive in Iran back in 2007. Um, He was missing for a very, very long time. And several years ago, when the U.S. government became clear that they no longer expected that Robert Robert Levinson was going to be coming home safely or alive. Several members of Congress wanted to work on something to honor his memory, to support his family, and to help ensure that these kinds of cases are really not happening again. So the Robert Levinson Hostage Recovery and Hostage Taking Accountability Act really takes on a wide range range of subjects across the hostage-taking spectrum. So one of the things that the act did was to codify an executive order and a presidential policy directive written by President Obama back in 2015 that set up government infrastructure to help with kidnapping cases. So when Americans are taken hostage by non-state groups like rebels, terrorists, and criminals. And so uh, 
that original Presidential Policy Directive 30 back in 2015 created an interagency organization that dealt with operational hostage recovery efforts. It set up a special office in the National Security Council, and it first set up the Special Presidential Envoy for Hostage Affairs Office. The Robert Levinson Act first codified all of those things, added a list of sanctions that could be put on anyone who is responsible for taking any sort of hostages, and laid out a list of the criteria that I was mentioning before for when an American who is arrested abroad should be taken out of the purview of the consular affairs office and moved into the special presidential envoy for hostage affairs responsibility. Essentially, when we think that an American is not just arrested, but is plausibly taken hostage by a state. Essentially, this act creates an infrastructure in the U.S. foreign policy bureaucracy to deal with cases exactly like Brittany Griner's cases, where you're not talking about like an American who stole a car in Paris, but someone who, like Brittany Griner, is transparently being held for political or spurious reasons. Precisely. Um, How does this case of Brittany Griner being detained? in Russia right now fit into broader trends around what you've identified and defined as hostage diplomacy? Sure. So in my research, I define hostage diplomacy as what happens when a state uses its criminal justice system to arrest a foreigner and use them for foreign policy leverage. So it might look like an arrest, but essentially it's a hostage taking committed by a state. And people who watch this area closely have suggested that in recent years, that kidnapping has really decreased around the world, that Americans are far less likely now to be kidnapped by a non-state actor, like a criminal rebel or terrorist. Um, than they were a handful of years ago. And that instead, this phenomenon that's on the rise of hostage diplomacy is that Americans are being arrested unlawfully or wrongfully for leverage by states. And some of the perpetrators that might sound familiar to your listeners of these kinds of cases include Russia, include China, North Korea, Iran, Venezuela, Cuba, and Turkey are uh, often the states that that most come to mind. And these cases have really risen in prominence in recent years. It's hard to know precisely about the numbers since so many of kidnapping cases and hostage diplomacy cases are never reported publicly. It also might seem that now that we have a name for this phenomenon, that we are more likely to see it. But the kind of aid and advocacy organizations who support families of victims of these sorts of crimes have reported that in recent years, they are far less likely to be helping families of kidnapping cases and much more likely to be assisting families uh, whose loved ones have been arrested wrongfully by states. And so this phenomenon certainly seems to be on the rise. What's fascinating, I think, about what you described is that the Countries that engage in hostage diplomacy, countries like Russia and China are, you know, strong countries or strong powers, but you're also talking Mm. about some middle powers as well, Iran or even weak powers like Venezuela and North Mm -hmm. Korea that, that have done this. My question is, 
when you are a country like China or like Russia, how do your demands for the release of the hostage differ than if you are a country like North Korea or Iran? Are bigger countries asking for, say, one set of things like a prisoner swap, whereas smaller or middle power countries are asking for more policy changes? What an interesting question. So one of the tricky things about hostage diplomacy is that states often don't make their demands explicit. And thinking about the way that you asked that question, I would actually suggest that the more powerful a state is, the less likely they are to explicitly request demands. Um, The demands are more often implied uh, rather than put on the table explicitly. But one meaningful difference that we can talk about across these different countries that are using uh, arrests of foreigners for foreign policy leverage is some states really like to use hostage diplomacy for one-on-one, really straightforward prisoner swaps. So they'll arrest an American, and the hope is that they will be getting one of their co-nationals back in return. So uh, there are currently two Americans wrongfully detained in Russia. That's Brittany Griner and Paul Whelan. Uh, Recently, a couple of months ago, another American who was arrested in Russia in 2019, Trevor Reed, was released. And Trevor Reed went home in exchange for one Russian who had been imprisoned in the United States. So one for one prisoner swap. Another recent pretty famous case was when China arrested two Canadian citizens in what seemed like a tit for tat when Canada arrested Meng Wanzhou, the CFO of Huawei. I've done a whole episode on on that case. And that case prompted my question to you because you had China seemingly like very transparently mm-hmm. arresting two prominent Canadians, Michael Kovrig and Michael Spavor, the two Michaels as they're known, uh, in retaliation to the Canadians uh, seemingly agreeing to an um, extradition request from the United States for this Huawei executive. It seemed like just a very transparent, uh, you know, tit for tat. Oh, absolutely. I mean, to, to observers, this seemed incredibly transparent. What is interesting is that throughout the entire ordeal, the Chinese government, the Canadian government, the U.S. government denied that when Meng was released from Canada and the two Michaels came home, they denied that that those actions were linked. And so even though it might seem so obvious to us watching that case, especially the timing of the arrests, the timing of the hearings and kind of every step that unfolded in that case, it really seemed obvious that this was a tit for tat. The Chinese never came out and said, this is a hostage taking and we want our citizen back in exchange for yours. So it's kind of the pretense of law that is the most important thing for these countries in these cases. They have to pretend that it's been a legitimate arrest and a legitimate trial. On the other hand, you know, when you have Americans detained in North Korea or you have like the the case of Jason Rezaian, the Washington Post reporter detained in Iran, you know, they weren't released in exchange for Iranians held in America or North Koreans held in America. They were released as a part of like broader diplomatic entreaties, right? Mm-hmm. So 
the less powerful countries that are using this tactic are asking for much more. They are attacking the release of Americans onto much larger diplomatic deals. So you mentioned Jason Rezaian, who was uh, who is a Washington Post reporter who was the Tehran bureau chief in Iran. He's um, uh, he was arrested in Iran and held in Evan prison and was there um, for years. He was ultimately released as part of the 2015 JCPOA, the Iran deal. And so he and other Americans came home. Actually, there were Iranian prisoners in the United States who were released as part Mm. of that deal. But the more notable part of that deal was, you know, the entire Iran deal. There was huge diplomatic um, negotiations around nuclear policy around debts that had to be paid, you know, it it was, it was a much, much broader deal. And so the less powerful countries are typically asking for much more. That brings us to, to Russia, a powerful country uh, currently in a conflict that is directly at odds with the United States and, and the rest of uh, the West. Yet, as you said earlier, even in the midst of this conflict, another American was released, Trevor Reed. That seemingly suggests that Russia, despite its conflict in Ukraine and hostilities with the United States, is willing and open to these kinds of deals. Uh, what do you suspect is going on in that SPIHA office, that office that was created as a result of that Robert Levinson Act within the, the State Department in terms of its advocacy for Griner's release? Hmm. So I saw the the release of Trevor Reed as a fantastic sign for multiple reasons. First of all, it's amazing for Trevor Reed and for his family that he got to come home. Um, Beyond his case, it's also a good sign that it means that despite the obvious tensions right now between the United States and Russia, that there is a back-channel conversation happening, that there are diplomatic engagements, and that it is still possible to work out some sort of deal despite the ongoing war that the United States so clearly opposes. So that was a very good sign for Brittany Griner and for Paul Whelan that means that those conversations are still happening. So once a case is referred to the SPIHA office, it means that their office starts to get to work to figure out a way to bring the American home. There's actually two teams working on her release right now. So not only has her case been referred to the SPIHA office, but uh, former ambassador, former governor Bill Richardson and the Richardson Center are also working on her case. And their organization works on hostage and detainee release cases. They've very successfully negotiated the release of a lot of American hostages and prisoners abroad. And so in addition to the U.S. government trying to figure out what kind of deal might be necessary to bring her home, that Governor Richardson is also hard at work on this case. And I've actually had uh, Governor Richardson, Ambassador Richardson, on uh, this show to discuss his work in securing the release of of hostages uh, abroad. But I'd love to hear from you the unique role that Mm. he can play and the things that like he can do in situations like this that the U.S. government cannot. Sure. So I see a real benefit in bringing someone 
like Richardson in on these cases because the benefits of a third party who, first of all, has a track record of success, is known around the world, has these existing relationships, is going to make even kind of getting those meetings easier off the bat. Um, their organization really focuses on the humanitarian aspect of prisoner releases and, you know, I think emphasizing to these countries that to be seen and respected on the world stage as a great power, you shouldn't be taking foreigners hostage. But the another benefit for the Richardson Center working on these cases is that they can take meetings with individuals that the United States government might consider unsavory to meet with. They can really go outside the box and to creatively brainstorm the kinds of concessions, the kinds of options that the United States government might be unwilling or unable to provide. And so uh, it's always great to have that kind of representation in a negotiation that are really willing to um, explore the kinds of mutual agreed options with your adversary sitting across the table. I always think it's a really good sign when they get involved. He can meet with anyone and isn't mm-hmm. constrained uh, by any U.S. government policy because he's a private citizen. Precisely. On specifically the Griner case, we had Trevor Reed released in April uh, as part of a, a prisoner swap. I believe the Russian for whom he was exchanged uh, was someone convicted in the U.S. federal court for drug smuggling. There's also talk, it seems, that Russia is seeking the release of Victor Boot, who is this very notorious international arms smuggler. I think there's like this terrible Nicolas Cage movie uh, based on his uh, exploits, but Uh he's uh, just this notorious guy in human rights circles for fueling all sorts of armed conflicts uh, around the world, finally arrested, is sitting in U.S. federal prison somewhere. And I've seen reports that Russians are are seeking his release. He is very high profile. Mm-hmm. Brittany Griner is very high profile. Do you see that exchange as something the United States would tolerate? That's a really hard question. So, you know, it's no surprise to me that the Russians would be floating Victor Boot for a prisoner swap. And to be clear, This didn't come as a statement or a demand explicitly from the Russian government, but there have been reports in state-owned media in Russia that have floated that this is the deal that the Russians want. So I think we can be confident that this is indeed something that is is coming from the top in Russia. Um, There are really, really difficult considerations to make in these kinds of cases, and It's plausible that the United States government is considering this as as part of a conversation. I think typically they will be looking for any sort of deal that will make least damage possible. And when we're talking about a super violent criminal with such a track record of aiding and spreading conflict, that's a really tough pill to swallow. So I think that's it's it's really tough, um, but I don't I'm not surprised that the Russians would would float his release. His release said, you know, that's been something that they've been asking for a very long time. And 
the U.S. government seemed to find someone else to exchange for Trevor Reed. And so, you know, I would hope that that kind of possibility is on the table instead. There's a real trade-off when we talk about these kinds of prisoner swaps. On the one hand, it's the most obvious way to bring an American home. The concessions work, and that's how you get someone home safely. Um, But there are huge costs and risks to making prisoner swaps, which is that it's returning violent criminals often to our adversaries. It rewards bad behavior. And it could possibly incentivize future wrongful arrests uh, to incentivize future prisoner swaps as well. Lastly, in the coming weeks or even months, are there any events or indicators or inflection points that you'll be looking towards that will suggest to you whether or not Brittany Griner is closer to coming home and uh Paul Whalen is closer to coming home. Hmm. So the trial that is starting on July 1st is um, maybe meaningless in terms of criminal justice, but can be an inflection point in the negotiations themselves. So the trial is scheduled to last for uh, weeks, if not months. So I, I don't think that we will have a a legal resolution anytime soon. But what happens when she faces trial is that what was previously a hypothetical that if she, if we don't come up with some sort of deal to bring her home, then she could face up to 10 years in a penal colony being accused for allegedly international drug trafficking, um, that that suddenly becomes much more real uh, once the trial is is really happening. Um, Reporting suggests that fewer than 1% of cases in Russian criminal court are actually acquitted. And so, you know, we shouldn't be looking to this as, as a fair trial where something good might come out of it. But I think it does put pressure to work on those negotiations quickly and to bring them home. I'm hoping that Brittany Griner and Paul Whelan will come home very, very soon, and that it's still possible that their release might be part of a broader deal that was part of the deal that brought Trevor Reed home. And we just haven't seen that whole thing play out yet, that that might be something that we only can see in retrospect. So um, I am hopeful these cases, unfortunately, often take a very, very long time, months, if not years. So um, I am thinking constantly of her and her family and her team as as they work through this and hoping that the United States government and that the Richardson Center are doing everything they can to bring this to a resolution quickly. You suspect, though, that Russian demands are around the release of Russians, not around, say, the lifting of any sanctions. It's a really good question. So they very well might be. And I think that the the fact that Russia is currently in this war with Ukraine, in this unjustified invasion of Ukraine, um, really adds a complication to this story. And so we haven't seen that kind of demand floated in the news. But, you know, given these past deals that we've seen with Iran, with Cuba, um, with North Korea over bringing home American prisoners, it would not surprise me if that were on the table as well. 
Uh, well, Danny, thank you so much for your time and expertise. This was really helpful. Thank you so much for having me. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Danny Gilbert and thank you to the Carnegie Corporation of New York. Today's show was produced in partnership with the Carnegie Corporation of New York. The views and opinions expressed belong solely to those of us who expressed these views and opinions. All right. We'll see you next time. Thanks. Bye.